0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Uh, Jessica wrote the phrases there for us, but uh, I also put a link in the chat um, that has the reference book um, and also a little bit about each of those four phrases. So you can use them. And uh, as I've been saying all the way through the course, we have to find our own way to unlock our heart. You know it's the problem is we get into these stories that make irritation and tightness and fear and you know all the different ways we can, glue back a sense of self, we often use greed, hatred, fear, aversion, delusion to do that. And so the part of the Divine Abodes or Brahma Vihara practice, these beautiful attitudes of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity that we're studying, like how we can sort of expose the falseness of whatever vortex our mind is locked in, aversive vortex our mind is locked in. That's the point of these different phrases. And we have to be prepared, like something might really work for a while, even many, many months. And then all of a sudden, that way of reflecting doesn't work anymore. So we always have to understand that there's no magic in any of these phrases. It's just how we can expose to ourself that there is a vortex and we can care about it. <laughs> you know, there is an experience that has a capacity to dilute us, like to limit the capacity of the mind and heart. And the phrase is sort of, one way or another, cracking that, shattering that little bubble. and then it's easier to recognize, oh, this, there is a good heart here, a heart that can hold it, can meet it, can respond, can feel, can forgive. And then we keep it in mind, we notice its exalted, expanded capacity, and then we learn to rest back and abide and trust. So we eventually we want to tease out the doer, the meditator who's meditating on compassion and so always save a little time at your sit at home to drop all of your compassion techniques or in the next few weeks we'll be moving on to mudita appreciative joy same thing just save some time at the end of the sit might be right in the middle but at least for a few minutes at the end where you're just presuming there's enough direct confidence in the goodness that that goodness itself can be the, in a sense the object of awareness. And in a way the heart allows it to expand, the, it, it's everywhere. So we don't even have to keep our attention on it because wherever the attention looks there's that tenderness because that's its nature. And it's really important because it will correct, it will tease out all the idealism we have about compassion or any of these four beautiful attitudes. You know, we've just heard too many songs and read too many poems, you know, and we've, you know, we just have a habit, most of us, of interpreting them in idealistic ways, which is why I like this poem. I'm sure many of you have seen this poem or heard me read it. Finally on my way to Yes by Pesha Gertler Finally on my way to Yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them up one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. <coughs> I find that tenderizing. <laughs> and then there's this is a little quote from Pema Children. She's talking about bodhicitta. In the later Buddhist traditions, they use this phrase. So bodhi means awakened, and citta is the word for heart, mind, heart, right? So awakened heart. But in the later Buddhist traditions, this idea of bodhicitta sort of gets equated with the boundless um, motivation to care about everyone. And so uh, she writes, Pema Chodron, this Tibetan nun, Western Tibetan nun, writes, At the bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is our heart, our wounded, softened heart. Right down there in the thick of things we discover the love that will not die. This love is bodhicitta. It is gentle and warm, It is clear and sharp, it is open and spacious. The awakened heart of bodhicitta is the basic goodness of all beings. And you know, I'm sure you're getting this sense, hopefully, this intuitive sense, even if it's just somewhat faint, but there is a very real liberation of the heart when we have moments of abiding. And uh, I don't know how many of you read that article that I sent out, um, The Nature of Compassion by Sharon Salzberg. But she talks about the Dalai Lama. <coughs> and, um, you know, he says about bodhicitta, he, he's, I guess, talking to some journalist or doing during one of his teachings he was saying I'm not sure why people like me so much and then this is a quote it must be because I really try to be compassionate to have bodhicitta that aspiration of compassion it's not that I succeed it's that I really try and, uh, and then Sharon Salzberg goes on in, in this article that you all have the link for in one of our previous emails, The Nature of Compassion. She goes on to ask the question that I think is really important because it goes to this point of um, directly sensing the goodness and the liberation of that goodness. And she says, like, is there the difference between us and some Buddhist saint, whether you imagine the Dalai Lama being a Buddhist saint or whoever you might bring to mind as somebody with a really deep awakening, and their moments when they're in that place of loving kindness or that place of compassion, is it that they're there more often, but when they're there, it's the same as when we're there. So qualitatively, my compassion is like the Dalai Lama's. Like, Would that be an arrogant thing to think? Or is it just... That he's in a different place, like so. When he has a moment of compassion, it's like degrees better than my moment of being compassionate. And Sharon, in this article, in this article, in this paragraph here, near the end of that uh, article, says, you know, her sense is that when we look at a moment when our heart is established in loving-kindness and compassion and appreciative joy, equanimity, when we're actually interested, really, like, this is good, so why wouldn't I pay attention? Why wouldn't I listen and feel without expectations? Because that always, you know, we can't have a spin. We have to just want to get to know the heart when it seems really good. And her point is, no it's the same the difference between someone like you know the dalai lama or some beautiful being some saintly being is that they're having more of those moments not that their moment is more profound or more deep and so that that is such an important part of the practice is to notice moments of pure compassion and to really sense into it feel the liberation this heart is temporarily at least liberated from fear and aversion there is no hate in this heart there is no constricting force of aversion in this heart that's that boundless so it we really want to sense it as a oh maybe this is what it's like to be free maybe this is a taste of the freedom that the buddhist teachings point to and lead to because we need these tastes when and i were talking uh, when and i uh, when fricky and i lead the sutta study group some of you are in the sutta study group there may be openings we always in april have a few slots for people who want to join and commit for a year so pay attention to the weekly email that will come out soon about that, maybe even next week. I think Gabe was thinking of sending that out. But uh, we're about to begin our next book in April, but until then we're reading articles, um, because we just finished the book on Compassion and Emptiness by Venerable Analio, this German Buddhist monk. And so the article that we'll read for this next month is going to be... Nibbana for Everyone, I think it's called, by Ajahn Buddhadasa. Some of you know he's a very famous Thai meditation teacher and Buddhist monk who died, I think also in the 90s, sort of a contemporary of Ajahn Chah and some of the other Thai forest elders of this last century. And uh, he wanted to kind of normalize Nibbana, this coolness, And in the same way, we need to normalize the possibility of deep love, pure spiritual love. There are moments when this heart, everybody's heart, experiences this. We just miss it because we're not interested. We haven't trained the heart to be interested. Just like we want to be interested when strong defilements arise. Oh, look at, I am so hateful. I just want to burn it all down. Right? We want to be interested in those moments and be able to meet them and see them in a balanced way. And it's the same with really beautiful moments. And we don't want to pretend, you know, like we're humble. Oh, not me. You know, I've got too many defilements, I'm too aversive, I've got too much fear, I'm totally addicted to the victim mentality or whatever. And we we actually just want to truthfully track the day, track the mind moment by moment and we'll start noticing there are moments when the heart just opens it just blossoms into very simple but also very pure love maybe it's when you're looking at the bird feeder or maybe when you realize that your partner left you a bowl of chili or something like that some simple generous act and you're just appreciative or grateful Or you see a child crying and your heart opens. Or whatever it might be. But we want to get good at noticing, don't we? (laughs) Because it's so easy to forget. And I think part of the problem is that we've been uh, frightened. We've been trained to be afraid of suffering. So we've gotten in the habit of using distraction and denial. I don't know if people remember but a while back I shared this the only song I remember my mom ever singing to me (laughs) and she sang it a couple times I I think she learned it from her mom and it's an old you know folk folk tune uh, that there are different versions of and it's actually surprisingly considered a lullaby that you would sing to a child but it is it is like a really scary story (laughs) And I think I think weird things like cultural habits, like this song, that I'll share the lyrics in just a moment, it's a way of institutionalizing fear. And so it's, it kind of goes like this, I'll just sort of sing it. Oh, don't you remember a long time ago There were two little babes Whose names I don't know Got lost in the woods on a bright summer's day, Got lost in the woods, so I heard someone say. And when it was night, so sad was their plight, The stars were not out, and the moon gave no light, And they sobbed, and they sighed, And they bitterly cried, Poor babes in the woods, Poor babes in the woods. And when they were dead, The robin so red Took strawberry leaves And over them spread. And all the day long They sang their poor song, Poor babes in the woods, Poor babes in the woods, and I wanted to share that because it there's this. Uh, I think I mentioned last week this near enemy of compassion, which is like pity and fear. And uh, you know, it's I, I said it's like an institutionalized use of fear, like to keep kids from wandering away. <laughs> So let's make them really scared of getting lost in the woods. You know, so there's probably some, you know, functional reason for these songs to exist in the way that they do. But it's it's a little too much too fast. And so we end up with this fear of suffering, fear of disaster, fear of death, fear of loss. And so that then starts to masquerade as compassion where we get sort of hyper aroused when we're in the vicinity of compassion and it's like we get on our guard and we get tight and we try to either control it or we try to sort of build a story that creates some distance from the suffering that we're exposed to and the the very characteristic of love and compassion is a curiosity and an interest and a capacity to be close. And that's why it's so empowering. It's that realization, that direct experience, Like I don't have to run away. It doesn't mean I understand this suffering. I just understand I don't need to be afraid of this suffering. Because we're sort of balancing the empathetic feeling of being close to suffering, right? Because we sympathetically sense the pain, like if it's not our own pain that we're connecting with, we sense, right? We can sense, oh, I sort of know what that might feel like. I have some ideas, some even visceral sense. But we're balancing that with this superpower, which is, I know you're suffering. I know you don't want to suffer in the same way I don't want to suffer. And I really wish that somehow you and maybe with my help that we can alleviate the suffering whether by taking whatever is painful for this person away or by helping them open to a wisdom or a love that uh, allows that suffering not to be so oppressive. So this is the place where wisdom comes in like when we're not afraid, it's because we have some sense that suffering isn't the like the, the particular conditions that cause suffering like having a broken leg or being cold or having someone insult you or humiliate you or whatever it might be. Wisdom understands that conditions don't get the last word around suffering, right? Because the Buddha teaches there is suffering, but there's also an end to suffering. And that end is unconditioned. It doesn't mean that we remove somebody's broken leg or we remove the the pain of humiliation. It means there is a way of being with humiliation, being with physical pain, being with emotional pain that is liberating doesn't mean we can snap our fingers and fix somebody or snap fingers and fix ourselves, eliminate the burden, the heaviness of our heart. But that, that wish, may you be free from suffering, may you be free from the causes of suffering, may your heart be at ease no matter the conditions. Right? These are the, this is that uh, generous wish that's there that allows us to respond, to do whatever might feel appropriate in the moment, to stay connected, to stay close, and it really is coming from this place that um, the sort of suffering that we experience and the suffering we see in others, that that isn't the end. Well, okay, that person's just screwed and there's nothing anybody can do, including them, So, I can bear witness, I can stay close and soothe, but they're basically screwed. And uh, that hiss, you know, that can be a, a real habit in our minds. And certainly, when we're surprised by the enormity of suffering, we can get into that sort of state of fear around it. And almost as if it's contagious, like, If bad stuff happens to them, maybe I need to be careful so it doesn't like leak over to me, and then bad stuff starts happening to me. And it's so this is um, this uh, element of equanimity that we'll get to before the end of the course, is really this wisdom element that is absolutely part of loving and and the tenderness of compassion and and even the ability to appreciate what's beautiful and good in the world is this profound sense that in ways that can't be explained, but that are real, that are are realizable by, by a human being like you and me, it's okay. Even death is okay, even loss is okay, even tremendous pain is okay. Doesn't mean we don't want to alleviate the sort of ordinary causes for the suffering. Oh, I guess we don't have to try to make the world a better place or unravel racial injustice, unravel the terrible patterns in our criminal justice systems. that keep playing themselves out and oppressing people over and over again because... You know, it's all okay. So that's not where compassion goes. But it is exactly that capacity to be in the messiness and in the injustice that allows us to do whatever work can be done to make things better for people and for ourselves. Some of you might remember, Joko Beck has a really, I think, beautiful way of talking about this, although I think, I'm not sure she always talks about this in terms of compassion. It may be more about wisdom or maybe the blending of wisdom and compassion. But she uses the simile of ice, water, and vapor, water vapor. And you know, it's all water, whether it's in the form of vapor or in the form of liquid water. Or in the form of ice, it's all what is water? Is it H2O? (laughs) I'm getting now. space now. But anyway, you know, water. And uh, so, mostly as human beings, you know, ordinary and therefore ignorant human beings, mostly we walk around as ice. You know, we're congealed, we're frozen, we're fixed. This is just the ordinary, ignorant point of view. And then if we undertake, you know, useful. Functional spiritual practices, we start to notice a more liquid quality, right? And then with the deepening of insight and more persistence and and real dedication, we notice moments of vapor, right? But the point that I think is so wonderful that uh, Joko Beck, if you don't know Joko Beck, she was a Western teacher, Charlotte Beck. Western name, and um, was the head of uh, the San, San Diego Zen Center for a number of decades and wrote a couple of really excellent books on Dharma practice. Uh, she died not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, But the, the piece of this story that I like a lot is she says, when ice has the experience of being mushy, even then when it gets hard and brittle ice, becomes hard and brittle ice again, it doesn't forget its mushiness. There's a, the lingering memory of being mushy, being watery or liquidy, and, and maybe even the vast space of vapor, you know, the lightness of vapor. And this is the thing when when we work this practice and we learn to trust that goodness and we learn to abide in the tenderness and the appreciation and the friendliness and the balance of the good heart. Um, it's like that feeling of openness and tenderness and fearlessness. It lingers on, and it and it's a way of going back. Somebody asked how to spell Joko Beck. So J-O-K-O, so that's her sort of spiritual name. Charlotte is her given first name. And then Beck, I think it's just B-E-C-K, Joko Beck. I think one of her books is Ordinary Zen or Everyday Zen. And it's uh, this little teaching on ice, <clears throat> water, and vapor, and how ice doesn't forget its mush- mushiness, is in one of her books. <clears throat> and part of it is, um, yeah, just. Uh, Keeping that confidence on the goodness of this heart in mind. And before I forget, you know, we're moving on to Mudita next week. And Mudita Appreciative Joy, I mentioned one of the phrases, you can just begin to start. Because one of the things we can appreciate when we're doing compassion practice is, Wow, this tenderness is good. May that goodness continue. May it increase May it never end. And for me, this I think came originally, those phrases from Guy Armstrong, one of our elders here in the West and the Vipassana scene. And uh, yeah, when Guy was teaching mudita practice and it it really, for me, just evokes that sense of boundless goodness. May this goodness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And even when I forget the goodness, the capacity for goodness, may it still continue and increase and never end. And I'm not even saying I'm always going to remember. But I'm but even when I forget, I'm cultivating the sense it's still there. So even when I'm angry, it's like there's this thread that begins to develop that's still there, even when we're in a contracted state. It's like the mind can't forget its mushiness, its openness. Oh, honey, you're really angry. You really want to burn it all down. You know, you really want to put this person in their place. You know, or, you know, do that four-year-old thing. I'm just not going to talk to you. (laughs) And we can have a sense of humor about all the ways that we stamp our feet and, you know, Plot some revenge, or hope the karma gods strike down the person for being a bad one, and you know get their just desserts and all that kind of negativity. Because of the space of love, it's really seen as being silly and uh, not helpful, not worthy of grasping. Just it's like the vastness of goodness just no longer fits. In that hateful container it just doesn't feel right it's still there you know the the pattern has a lot of momentum you know it's different for each of us some of us have more of the victim pattern other of us have more of the perpetrator pattern but whatever our patterns around fear and hate and anger and you know envy and jealousy and and competition and criticism and judgment Whatever those habits are for us, we, can, it, we can't really be aware of them, like even do our vipassana, our wisdom practice, unless we have developed this capacity of love. Because it really allows us to get close. It's like what actually lets us get close to suffering, gets get close to the ignorance? Well, it's this capacity of the heart to include everything. And that's what love is. It's like not afraid of, oh yeah, I know, it can be this way. Just like, you know, that sort of stereotypic great-grandparent, you know, they've seen it all, so however we might show up for them, you know, hey, you don't need to be afraid to be who you are. I know this, I get this, I've seen this before. you know we probably remember times i hope we all remember times being met in that way where the person's love is really unconditional they don't they're not expecting anything back which of course makes us wanna just love them back because their love is unconditional it's just freely given no strings attached they just care and they're they're willing to do anything I remember Stephen Levine some of you know him uh, a Buddhist practitioner in our tradition but also he had deep roots in sort of the yogic mystical traditions Um, and uh, he and his partner for many years um, did a lot of work around people who were dying and I and I did a few workshops with Stephen Levine way back in the 80s and early 90s and he would say that you know just uh, like in that hospice work around people dying that you're when you're really in that place you're willing to do anything that will help somebody and I forget exactly what he did but somebody was in the dying process and had gotten really constipated and some of you know a lot of the pain meds that people take at the time can be quite constipating and uh, and Stephen Levine just said, uh, you know, just shared some story of just doing something really stupid, really silly to make the person laugh. And then he or she had a ball movement um, and just that uh, that nimbleness to kind of, you know, not have a not try to figure out how to be helpful, but just to be in that place of love of openness of inclusivity and then we might find that who we are and how we're responding is like we would have never thought to do that or planned to do that but there it was we found ourselves saying something that was helpful or keeping quiet in a way that was really helpful that we never could have figured out analytically and it's really this is the the kind of functionality of kindness and love and compassion and appreciative joy because it has this nature to include it's really connected to what's moving in the moment so the response can be very effective and of course the opposite is clearly not the way this is from um, another article that has been linked to before uh, nothing is left out by Ajahn Sumedho and there's just a short few sentences he's talking about love and how inspiring it can be that it uplifts the mind if we constantly dwell on what's wrong with ourselves and the world our mind becomes weighed down this negative state can lead to depression the more we obsess our minds with negativity the more we get weighed down. And pretty soon we're stuck in a realm of ongoing, seemingly unmitigated negativity. And actually, it, should, it really should scare us because we know, you know, the more we practice, we really know that we're creating our own world moment by moment. And we can really create Hell. And, you know, these divine abodes of loving kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, they're they're really like, you want to know what the deva realm, the celestial realms, or like the Buddhist angels, what they, their lives are like. Well, it's just the opposite, you know, instead of being in one of those really tight hell realms where there's this unending negativity, unending hate, unending self-hate or whatever it might be there's also this possibility more and more to be in this wide open loving state i had a chance back in the 80s to hear desmond tutu speak in berkeley when he was there when i was living in the area and uh, he just you know I, you know you never know these sort of celebrity type people but he seemed to be a bundle of joy And you know he was. This was. They were still in the middle of the struggle at the time. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the year, but it was probably like the mid '80s or '86 or '7 at the latest. And uh, but just that, just how contagious that energy is when you see somebody who's not afraid to be wide open, even when there's they're sort of connected with a lot of suffering people. Nhat Han was another the one of those people, you know, that he just had such a gentle and tender and steady and loving presence just to be around. And I think it's really useful for us to have, you know, a string of memories when we've been in the presence of somebody I remember I tell the story sometimes, one of the schools I taught at back um, in the 80s after I left or when I was leaving they gave me a going away party and I got a hug from the kindergarten teacher and she was just a great human being and I still remember that hug (laughs) because I just felt like the love that that heart was established in was totally pure totally giving and totally out of the way as a person so you know, when we're out of the way, it's really the love of the whole universe. I know that sounds a little, can sound a little out there for people. But there's real power when the self gets out of the way. And you really want to open your mind to this. So when, we, when we're getting a little momentum in a sit, where we're doing compassion, or in the weeks ahead doing the mudita, the appreciative joy, when we get that instruction about resting back and abiding when we're letting go of the person doing the practice, be you know, and we're just trusting the being the love, being the compassion, being the appreciative joy, there's really it that the power we feel, the purity of that love and the strength, the depth and the breadth of that love, it's really shocking. And in Buddhist practice this is this is like i think i mentioned this a couple weeks ago this is really good therapy because a lot of our negative stories that we repeat to ourselves when we start tasting this every once in a while in our lives and in our meditation practice a kind of beauty and purity and strength of that it's just like it's really hard to think negatively about ourselves And the thing about that love is it's very real, but it doesn't feel personal, it doesn't trigger pride. It will trigger like wanting it to last, but the more we see it and experience, the more we realize it is truly good, it is truly beautiful, it is truly healing, and it isn't mine. But that doesn't mean we understand what it is except that it's real. <laughs> and But we don't need a story. That's the thing about the, the deepening of insight and practice is it doesn't need an explanation. We just need a method to keep coming back. And that's really the practicality or pragmatism in early Buddhism especially. It doesn't really bother with explaining things metaphysically too much. You know, like, where does that love come from? <laughs> it's just, it just cares about clarifying the path, like what actually works and what are the signposts posts on the path so we can find our way and where people who have had a little bit more experience than us can support us along the way, right? Just, uh. How we give each other pointing out instructions so we can do the work ourselves, because no one can do it for us. And a lot of what we learn about love is, it's exactly the stuff we don't want to meet in our own life, and the experiences and the difficult relations, relationships. That's where the we really um, build the confidence, because. it's only love that can actually show up in those places here's a line from a well-known poem from Antonio Macaro. last night I dreamt there were last night I dreamt there was a white wax comb here in my heart and that golden bees were making sweet honey of my old failures and there is that kind of alchemy in our practice We are those places where there's been so much pain that we just, we're kind of practicing so we don't get pulled back into those places. And it might actually be skillful to avoid those places for some time. Like we don't have the confidence or the balance and the goodness and the wisdom that knows how to meet. But a lot of the learning is like staying in the vicinity of that messy stuff. I was saying, uh, I was talking to Shelly this morning about the killing of Amir Locke. Um, so those of you out of town maybe haven't heard, but the Minneapolis Police Department did a, um, one of those, uh, what do they call them, no knock warrants where they just sort of enter a premise um, because of uh, some suspect is evidently there. And somebody was just sleeping on the couch, somebody who had a, a gun with them and a permit to have that gun. And the police in the middle of the night break in. He's sound asleep. And he grabs his gun because he's probably shocked. And he gets killed within 10 seconds. So it's it's just another one of those terrible stories and situations where, you know, we are all citizens and responsible that we have policing that where things like this happen. And mostly, or at least a lot of the time happening to black men. And what do we do with that kind of suffering? And just to notice our own reaction, like, uh, as I mentioned, I was talking to Shelly, just the kind of numbness that can creep in if we're not careful, as if that's a useful strategy for living our life. Like, I'm going to get, I and mean, we would never say this out loud, you know, about these perennial, chronic, terrible ways that suffering keeps arising over and over again. Personally, for some of you around us, for all of us, in so many different ways, Right. We would never say, you know, I'm going to really study hard and get good at this numbness thing. No, I'll learn from the best. <laughs> People who can blot it out, who can turn away, who can pretend it ain't so. We would never say that because it doesn't make We know it doesn't make sense. We know the price of closing the heart is not a price anybody, any sensitive human being would do when they're aware, when they're conscious. We do it out of habit when we're unconscious. It kind of creeps in. And that's what I meant too about how we institutionalize fear and we institutionalize blame, right? We we have our ways of blaming or excusing why terrible things happen. As a way of when we really look as a way of distancing ourselves. So one of the things that we're learning is, you know, honey, that doesn't work. I totally get why I want to numb out. I totally get why I want to distance myself. Why I want you know, for me, being kind of a rational type, it's like explaining, like, oh, history is this way, so that's why this thing goes on in our society or That's why these people are poor and these people are privileged. And I'm not kind of creating an excuse, but even just me telling myself that stuff is a way of not just feeling what I feel, which is, this really hurts. This is a yucky feeling that people are suffering. This sense that I can't make it go away. What does that feel like for us? Can we be close to that, that we're not in this position with a lot of the suffering we're aware of to make it go away, and yet not doing anything doesn't feel right either? How do we get close to that so that we're in this place where we're not afraid to just be there with the suffering and what it feels like in our hearts, and we're also not afraid to do something when there's something to do? So that's part of this practice. And as we move into appreciative joy, to look at the same thing around beauty and goodness and how we're numbed out around that. Simple goodness, simple beauty, simple pleasure in our lives and how we don't really let it in because it's sort of like, oh, you're going to go away anyway, or I can't own you, this pleasant thing, this beautiful thing. can't make it mine. I can't put it in my treasure chest and store it up. So why, why bother? As if there are just two options. You know, to grasp it, which we know doesn't work, or to turn away from it. But to, to just notice, like, well, what is the skillful way to be around beauty and goodness? And how can I learn, just like we have to learn how to be around suffering, how can I learn to be around what's beautiful and what's good? What does that feel like? What does that look like in life? This is from that article again, The Nature of Compassion by Sharon Salzberg. She writes here, Compassion is a practice of cultivation rather than laying a veneer of idealism on top of reality, we want to see quite nakedly all the different things that we feel and want to do for all the things... Let me say that again. Um, we want to see quite nakedly all the different things that we feel and want and do for what they are. This, the mistake that most of us make at one time or another is with a practice like compassion, which is different than the practice based solely on awareness, just seeing what is, is to try to lay that veneer on top of whatever we're actually feeling. I mustn't feel anger. I must feel only compassion, because after all, that's my dedication to feel compassion. So we feel incredible rage, and yet we're trying to deny it and say, well, I'm not angry because I'm practicing loving-kindness and that's all I want, that's all I'm allowed to feel. It's a very delicate balance bringing those two together, pure awareness, which is so honest, and seeing what's happening and also the cultivation of something like compassion. And the thing about cultivating compassion, it isn't that we actually do it. It's like the Dalai Lama says, we aspire to it we value compassion, we have a memory, right, a confidence that my heart is capable of compassion, and I know that it arises due to the proximity of suffering. So we use the awareness wisdom practice to kind of acknowledge, oh, it's like this, this is arising. We're reading about Amir Locke and his killing and we're feeling what we're feeling, right? And and we know that the heart is capable of holding this. And so we're in that place, like, with the causes for compassion, but not so much imagining I just impose compassion on the moment. It's like, what, when we see what, when we relate to experiencing and. What way does that compassion arise? And we can learn a lot from the little tricks we learn from arousing it, like how does it work when I say, you know, I'm sorry, or thank you, I love you, please forgive me, or whatever phrases you like or memories. What is it about that that ignites, that reveals the heart that cares, the heart that's good? So we get really familiar with, you know, this is what wisdom does, it understands causes. What does the mind, the heart have to feel and see for compassion to arise? What does the mind have to feel and see for wisdom to arise? And how do they work together? This is uh, related from Ajahn Semedo. Um, <clears throat> I think this is from yeah, the book, The Mind in the Way, and he has a chapter on, on uh, metta in that book. He says, when we have metta for ourselves, we start by listening to what we really think of ourselves. No editing. Don't be frightened. Be courageous and listen to the unpleasant thoughts or fears that go through your mind. Sometimes a lot of silly, foolish things come up. Nothing really bad or terribly evil or disgusting, but just foolish, irrational things. Maybe we like to think of ourselves as being very serious and sincere, practical and sensible. But sometimes the thoughts and feelings in our mind are really stupid and useless. I reckon that the ability to sit with the rubbish is a sign of an advanced student. It takes a long time for people... To just let the rubbish come in like that, and it's not just with our own stuff, right? It's with our everybody's stuff, just to let it come in. And I'll just end with a famous story from the suttas. Some of you remember, I'm sure, Kisa Gotami. So she was uh, grew up in a poor family, and as it is the case or was the case at least she was married off to family and uh, at the time maybe even in places still today you know as a woman didn't really get any respect as she lived with the family of her husband until finally after many years she bore a son and finally she got a little bit of respect and then uh, tragically the boy died and uh, as a infant and she just couldn't handle it because of, you know, the blame that was put on her and just the loss and everything associated with that death. And she sort of lost her mind for a while and kept walking around the area asking everyone if they knew of some medicine for her dead son, as if there would be medicine that could bring her son back. And everyone just sort of treated her badly because they thought she was crazy and probably they were frightened by her suffering like we've been talking about. And finally somebody had the wherewithal to say to her, yeah, there is somebody who can give you medicine. And she pointed her in the direction of the Buddha who was in the area. So she tracked down the Buddha and the Buddha had the good enough sense to say to her, yeah, I can help you, there is some medicine, but you have to go to the village and you have to collect mustard seeds just a few mustard seeds they're very small everybody in India has mustard seeds because it's a common spice but only from a household that hasn't experienced death and she was so excited that somebody was going to bring her son back to life so she took off to the village she started knocking on the doors people said sure we're happy to give you some mustard seeds but you know what you know, my mother, my father, my grandparent, my child, everybody she went to, every house she went to, somebody had died in that house. And after, you know, certain number of houses, just her own, through her own experience, death being normalized, the pervasive truth, and the way this gets captured when she went back to the Buddha, She said to the Buddha, No village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds of gods, this only is the law, that all things are impermanent. So she had this powerful awakening and ordained as a bhikkhuni, a a Buddhist nun, and in very short order had full awakening. That's how the story goes. But just from that place of being completely having lost one's mind to fully awaken and just finding a creative way to open to the suffering. And her particular medicine was seeing that she wasn't alone in the pain of loss. Right there there's really an infinite number of ways back to all the habits of denial, all the habits of fear, all the ways that we've learned to close our heart down or numb out. And then it's just a matter of not forgetting our mushiness. Right? Like, what would it be? Sometimes I, I describe it this way, like moving through life, moving through our day, being the broken one, the broken-hearted one, the wounded one like not forgetting our brokenness not pretending we're a healthy vibrant happy human being but but the happiness and the the kind of stability comes from non-fear and not having to pre having to pretend we got it all together cuz this i think is really a, about coming into alignment with the truth of dukkha you know, the heart that can hold it all. Love holds the truth of suffering. Only wisdom and love can open to a world that's as messy as this. Terrible, terrible things happen all the time in this world. And can we live without being afraid of that truth? I'll just remind us of the image um of that uh, in the Tibetan tradition, of somebody with a child being swept away, you know, by the water by, of, of a river, and they don't have the capacity, they don't have limbs to get in the water and save the child. They can only see it, see the child, and care about the child. So I'll end with this poem. Some of you uh, old timers remember Renee Howard, a long time community member she was the chair of our board of directors for a number of years back she died a number of years ago and she lived her last months with uh, Wynn and I we invited her into our home um, to have hospice service and just to be around the community more and Rini was a wonderful writer including writing some beautiful poems and this is a poem she wrote called perfect gift go naked before God stop looking in the mirror And messing with your hair Don't worry what everyone else is wearing Or whether you look fat Go naked to the beloved in full daylight Make a love offering of your entire roly-poly self It's the only thing you have to give So give it joyfully Hold nothing back Place the whole absurd and precious package In the palm of the Divine where love will receive it with infinite tenderness and delight. Sweetheart, don't you know, you are the perfect gift. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.